between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Ekaterina Dadachova. Dr. Dadachova is a professor of pharmacy at the College of Pharmacy and Nutrition at the Federuk Center for Nuclear Innovation Chair in Radio Pharmacy. Before joining the University of Saskatchewan, she was a professor of radiology, microbiology, and immunology in the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, where she was also Sylvia and Robert S. Olnick Faculty Scholar in Cancer Research. She received her PhD in physical chemistry from Moscow State University in Moscow, Russia in 1992, and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in radiopharmaceutical chemistry at the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organization in Sydney, Australia. Dadachova's laboratory has pioneered the treatment of infectious diseases, including fungal and bacterial infections and HIV with radio-labeled antibodies, what's called radioimmunotherapy. Her other research interests are radioimmunotherapy of melanoma, blood cancers, and osteosarcoma, as well as the development of melanin-based radioprotectors for cancer patients undergoing radiation therapy soldiers on the battlefield, and astronauts in space. I'm excited to learn about all the research that Dr. Dadachova has done, especially on melanin-containing fungi and how they react to ionizing radiation. Dr. Dadachova, thank you so much for joining us on Mushroom Hour. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be on that podcast. Well, your work is uh, really in the realm of science fiction, I think for a lot of us, when we start reading about fungi that seemingly eat radiation and the other work you're doing in radio labeling antibodies. So it's really a privilege to, to have you on to speak about some of these far out concepts. But before we dive into it, I am really curious about how you got interested in this field. Before the interview, you were saying you were surprised at how many people were interested in your work and these, you know, these fungi and how they withstand radiation. But I, so I'm curious about how you got interested in that, and how you pursued this field of research. Well, I think it's a little bit complicated story, but uh, I will try to make it simple, not to take a lot of time. When I um, joined Albert Einstein College of Medicine, in New York already two decades ago, that was, um, I was interested in developing that uh, therapy for infectious diseases using the radio-labeled antibodies, which is sort of my tool, my bread and butter. And I found really nice uh, collaborators in infectious disease fields 
doctors Kasadeval and Nasanchuk, and um, they were interested in uh, several pathogenic fungi, which infect humans. And those fungi, they produce melanin. So a lot of those fungi, once they end up in human body, they uh, make melanin. This is one of their ways to protect themselves from our immune system so they cannot be cleared by our immune system. And they have some antibodies to melanin, which we tried then to develop in the treatment for melanoma. That's what you mentioned in your nice uh, introduction, Darren. And that's how that melanin and melanoma and my interest in radiation, everything came together. And then uh, we started to read those fascinating reports by uh, several scientific groups from Ukraine who actually went uh, to Chernobyl in late 80s, early 90s, and they observed the black fungi there. They sort of just recorded that, yes, there was an overabundance of those black fungi in the soil uh, surrounding um, Chernobyl accident site, but they didn't make any conclusions that why they were all melanized, why they were all black. So we started to perform those experiments in the laboratory showing that basically melanin is the reason why those fungi are so successful living in the radiation field. And out of this research then came uh, out uh, like the next step, I would say, trying to develop radio protectors for those people who might need radio protection because they are exposed to radiation. And the range of such people, of course, is very broad, from cancer patients, as you also said in your introduction, to soldiers who could end up in some kind of radiological situation, to astronauts who go into space and they encounter cosmic radiation, which is also rather penetrating and can give them unnecessary high dose. So that's a little bit convoluted, but that's, that's the story. A terrific overview. And so starting at a very fundamental level in a lot of your work, what is melanin? And I know that sounds really basic. And I know a lot of people are familiar with hearing the word melanin and that it is a pigmentation in skin. Obviously, you talked about the fungi having a black color. It's from the melanin. But you know what? what is melanin? And then maybe we can get into, is there anything unique about the melanin in these fungi? Uh, melanin is a pigment and uh, it's actually ubiquitous in uh, every uh, class of life on Earth, right? So we as humans have a lot of melanin, say melanin in our eyes, in our hair, in our skin, also in uh, neurons in our brain. That's also very important. We cannot see that neuromelanin, but that actually what gives us the nice functionality of our movements. And uh, those unfortunate patients who start losing that melanin, they develop Parkinson's disease. So it's very related. So we have to take care of melanin in our body, right? And a lot of organisms uh, on Earth also produce melanin for different purposes. Fungi are one example, and they produce melanin for also many purposes, but it uh, protects them from the environment because the fungi which enter our body and then become pathogens, they have not originated, of course, uh, in humans. They originated in the soil. And in the soil, there are all, a lot of 
ways where which uh, could kill the fungi, right? Ultraviolet radiation, heat, uh, other organisms, and melanin gives them rigidity, gives them protection, and so on. So they develop those fascinating ways to make their own melanin, like we humans make our uh, mammalian melanin. Uh, and melanins, they differ a little bit in structure, though they all have some similarities. But I think the main similarity that melanin is one big uh, stable radical. Sort of to make it understandable, maybe many people in the audience have heard, oh, there are three radicals which are formed when we're exposed to ultraviolet or uh, something else. And those free radicals are culprits uh, uh, causing the damage to our DNA, to our cells, and we need antioxidants, right? So melanin is also right. one free radical, but it's a stable radical. It just exists, right? That's the uniqueness of its molecule. And that's why melanin can catch those uh, short-lived free radicals, which are formed as a result of exposure to UV, say, when we are in the sun, we're exposed to some harmful UVs. So melanin in our skin protects us to a certain extent, of course, against that UV. The same in fungi, like uh, a lot of melanin, which makes them black, protects them from UV. And apparently it can also protect them from radiation because the melanin is right on the outside of the fungal cells. And that's how that large, stable free radical can catch damaging short-lived radicals and protect fungi against all those insults. So that's, in a nutshell, why melanin is so unique. A beautiful description of melanin. And you can see that no matter what organism it's in, you said it can take on a number of roles. It always seems to have a protective aspect to it. And your description about absorbing free radicals then starts to make a lot of sense. So I guess where you started then was seeing how fungi, pathogenic fungi in the human body are actually using melanin to protect themselves against our immune system, you know, without going into it because it's a lifetime of research too, too deeply. Uh, what are the mechanisms by which melanin is helping pathogenic fungi survive the human immune system? Well, that's um, actually not exactly my area, right? That's the area of my infectious disease collaborators, right? Which I sort okay. of, you know, learned uh, from them. But um, basically those melanized cells, they are resistant to killing by the components of immune system, for example, macrophages, right? Or T cells or say natural killer cells. Melanin uh, is a tough pigment to digest, to penetrate. And that's how those components of immune system, those cells, they have difficulties dealing with melanized cells versus non-melanized cells. And that's why, for example, in the past, when one of those uh, fungal diseases caused by Cryptococcus neoformans, right? And that was that microscopic fungus, which we used a lot in our research in regard to melanin and radiation. So when those unfortunate patients would die and they would perform autopsy on them, on their brain and on their lungs, where those pathogenic fungi primarily congregate, they will find those cells covered with the layer of melanin. And that's why they were there, because they were really well protected 
against human immune system and thus making a lot of damage to that unfortunate person who was infected. Very, very interesting. Well, I guess then to kind of break down another fundamental aspect of your work, the idea of radiation. And again, this is something that everyone's heard of. We all have a rough understanding of how it works. But in just reading the research you've done and papers referenced on your website, there's kind of a delineation between ionizing and non-ionizing radiation. So what are kind of the fundamentals of radiation? You know, and don't be scared to go too basic because it's something I think a lot of people have heard of and we don't really know how it works. So what what are the basics of kind of radiation and what it does to biological organisms like humans? Right. Radiation could be uh, ionizing and non-ionizing. Like primarily the radiation which we encounter in our everyday life is non-ionizing. And that would be UV, that would be infrared, which gives us uh, heat. It would be radio waves, and we listen to the radio, like uh, sounds. These are all waves, right? And the, all this radiation is non-ionizing. But when we go into another end of that spectrum of radiation, where the wave length becomes shorter and shorter, but the energy becomes higher and higher, so that on that end of that spectrum of electromagnetic radiation is ionizing radiation. So the energy of ionizing radiation is so high that when it goes through the matter, it starts to produce those charged species, which means ionization, right? So it doesn't just go through the species, so it will create positively and negatively charged species. And those uh, species, of course, if that kind of ionization happens inside the living body, right, this kind of uh, ionized species could do a lot of damage. And these are those free radicals, for example, charged species which can damage DNA, the damage cellular membranes, and so on. So that's like the major difference between uh, ionizing radiation and uh, non-ionizing radiation. So, of course, when we think of nuclear radiation, obviously you invoked the example of Chernobyl, this example of a nuclear meltdown. Then we're talking about, I'm assuming, very high power, short wave ionizing radiation. When Chernobyl accident happened, so there was widespread contamination of the soils around uh, the reactor with all kinds of radioactive atoms, right? And those radioactive uh, atoms, by their nature, because they were part of that nuclear fuel inside that uh, reactor, right? That was a nuclear power station. Uh, They emit all kinds of ionizing radiation, like gamma rays, beta particles, and also those Mm. alpha particles, which you, Darren, probably are referring to. Those are a very short, they have very short track uh, in tissue and in air, but when they go through, say, tissue, through water, which is 70% our body is water, it can do a lot of damage because they create a lot of ionizations. So the more ionization is created in the track of a particle or a ray, the more the damage to the living tissue. So alpha particles, if they are inside the body, they are the mostly damaging. Right. Now, when did fungi enter the scene? When did people start to realize that there were fungi growing around the Chernobyl incident in the aftermath? And I guess, when did that epiphany 
happen that they must be doing something special to resist these radioactive particles? From what I know, there were not many research, of course, going into that 30-kilometer zone around a site during the first maybe five, six years after the accident. But then in the early 90s, uh, already I think research groups from Ukraine started to go there because we can judge by the publications which started to be uh, appearing in the press. And there was a group led by Dr. Zdanova, Nina Zdanova, and uh, they were reporting, started to report on those black fungi which they were bringing from that 30-kilometer zone. And those black fungi uh, had fascinating ways of, say, growing towards radiation. That's how we learned about it. And then we started to work with the similar fungi in the lab and trying to investigate the mechanism, what is going on and what makes those fungi are so capable of dealing with radiation in a very specific way. And we thought that melanin was the reason why they were able to deal with radiation in such ways different from other organisms. Am I getting this right then that your research, you were already interested in researching radioactive particles, radioactivity in general. Is is that correct? Was that kind of the, the start of your research? Yeah, because my uh, background uh, in physical chemistry and radiochemistry, and then when I uh, became a postdoc in Australia, I, I went into that radiopharmaceutical field. So radiation, right. which is carefully directed by carrier molecules, such as antibodies or small molecules, is our tool for imaging or treatment of different diseases. So anything which has to do with that radiation is of some interest or relevance to me and my research. So, of course, when we saw fungi, which are capable of dealing with ionizing radiation in very interesting ways and actually benefiting from being in the radiation field, unlike the majority of other, say, cells like human cells or animal cells which become sort of killed or weakened when they're exposed to ionizing radiation, that was really fascinating. And that's how we began like those projects, which were still continuing currently. That was the heart of my question is what interested you in radiation? And of course, there are ways that we beneficially use radiation in a very directive manner in the medical field. Uh, And then you stumbled onto this research and realizing how fungi with melanin reacted. And I guess what is it about the melanin found in these fungi as, as best that you can describe, because it may be you know, an ongoing question throughout all of your research, but what is different about the melanin being produced by these fungi or the way that their cells use the melanin that protects them against radiation? Because uh, you know, as you said, human cells tend to die when exposed to these radioactive particles we've been talking about, and we have melanin on our cells. So what is different about this fungal melanin that's enabling them to seemingly thrive in environments with ionizing radiation? Uh, Right. So um, there are several reasons why fungi use their melanin, say, for protection uh, from radiation much more efficiently than we do. And uh, the main reason is that uh, spatial arrangement. Basically, every fungal cell has melanin in its 
wall, like fungal cell are surrounded by so-called fungal wall. Our mammalian cells do not have a wall, right? We only have a membrane. Right. And so melanin is incorporated into that fungal wall. So basically radiation has to go through the layer of melanin before it reaches any fungal cell. The fungal cell is sort of encased, I would say, in a thin layer of melanin. In our human cells and in cells of other mammals which produce melanin, melanin is inside the cells in a little specks and a little organelles called melanosomes. So, yes, there will be some interaction of those melanosomes with incoming radiation, such as ionizing, but they cannot protect us even like close to what melanin and the fungal cells could do, right? Because they are encased. It's like the shield. That's what like we always use that term shield when we talk about fungal melanin. They are shielded by their melanin against uh, radiation. And then uh, there are like several physical processes which uh, takes place when melanin uh, and ionizing radiation start to interact. So basically, uh, very simply put, melanin can scatter part of that ionizing radiation. And uh, when those uh, free radicals uh, or ionized species are being formed, which I already alluded to when I was describing what is ionizing radiation, that stable radical of a melanin molecule can absorb them. So basically, it's like two ways, two major ways melanin can interact uh, with ionizing radiation and exerts its protective effect. So we're talking about the very structure of the cell is encasing it in melanin, protecting it from these free radicals, also is the ability to scatter and absorb them. So we've kind of covered protection. And then a concept that really blew my mind in reading some of your work was this idea of radiotropism. Mm-hmm. You know, is it possible that the fungal melanins have a component where they're able to actually harvest energy from ionizing radiation? Am I understanding that correctly? Uh, yes, yeah, you're understanding it correctly. So here we must uh, sort of uh, explain to the listeners one very important thing, like the energy of ionizing radiation is huge, right? So for example, all our body is made of molecules and uh, there is certain energy like of a chemical bond, right? So chemical bonds hold together the atoms and the molecules in our body. So the energy of ionizing radiation is literally one million times approximately higher than the energy of our chemical bonds, which hold everything together. So the same, of course, in fungi, right? Uh, Fungi made of the same molecules like sugars and proteins. And uh, so fungi only need and only can utilize teeny tiny amount of that huge incoming energy from the ionizing radiation. But then uh, because they have that melanin position so conveniently outside of the cell, melanin can uh, scatter some of that radiation and uh, convert like that little part of all the incoming radiation into the chemical energy, which then fungi could use in its uh, metabolism and, and life cycle. So that's basically what one needs to understand. Fungi 
cannot and they do not want to consume all that ionizing radiation which is incoming. They can uh, consume only the teeny tiny part, but it's still sufficient when they find themselves in a situation when the energy sources are lacking and uh, they're looking for additional energy sources, then what we think they can switch on that ancient mechanism of utilizing the energy of ionizing radiation via melanin. I mean, an incredible concept. I think we all have images of these black molds being fed by radiation and growing to these out-of-control organisms. It's very much not that. It's not their preferred food source, but they have the ability, and you just referenced, to tap into an ancient ability to harvest just, it sounds like, pieces of these ionizing radiation waves that come in. And that, I think, will have a lot of people's imaginations sparked with this idea that you know, the, the hypothesis that fungi have come from outer space, you know, could this be some vestige of ancient fungi that came to earth from outer space that had to harvest ionizing radiation from space, you know, and that they kept that ability uh, when put in those circumstances. So yeah, again, it gets me into a lot of different science fiction concepts that I Actually, think are really interesting. Uh, uh, we, um, our collaborators, like we collaborate with many groups, right? Because uh, it's not only us, of course, who is interested in melanized fungi, right. and melanized fungi and radiation. So we have a lot of collaborators worldwide. And we collaborate with one um, group in Italy uh, from University of Tushia. So, and they uh, are very involved in the work of European Space Agency and uh, International uh, Space Station. So they performed the experiments and they described them when one of those black fungi, which we together with them studied in the lab, was sent into the space on the International Space Station in dry form, was sitting outside of the space station in special <laughs> plates for, I would say, several months, then was brought back to Earth and they were able to revive it. So it was still alive uh, after being exposed to real space radiation. And then it was able to thrive back in the lab when uh, sort of supplied with water and other nutrients. So I'm not trying to imply that that particular fungus or others came to us from outer space, but right. certainly, you know, when we travel, say when the astronauts will travel to other planets, if they want to bring something with them, uh, like black fungi, they will probably survive that the journey. So that's what I'm trying to say. Yes, of course. So they have the capability to survive in outer space. We can't say for sure if they've come from there, but uh, it's an inexorable connection, the the fungi from outer space. So, so we've talked about a couple hostile environments then that melanized fungi are able to survive due to this ability to both protect and potentially harvest small bits of ionizing radiation. And that's the example of Chernobyl. And that's the example there of experiments in outer space. But tell us a little bit about the work you've done examining melanized fungi in Antarctica, because that one stood out to me as another hostile environment we might not think of that these fungi would be specially suited for. Well, that's again, that's the work of my collaborators to whom I just referred, that the group uh, from uh, Italy, Dr. Laura Zeldman, uh, Dr. Claudia Pacelli, uh, they actually go to that station in Antarctica 
and uh, they observed those fungi in their native environment, right? The fungus which I was referring to by uh, that like long name Cryomyces antarcticus, that actually tells you where it came from, was brought to our lab by uh, Dr. Claudia Pacelli, and then we started to expose it to ionizing radiation in the lab and show that, yeah, I mean, it can survive enormous amounts of ionizing radiation and still thrive afterwards in actually so-called physiological state, right? Which means that the fungus is alive. It's not like sleeping because it's dry. It's actually alive and it's still very resistant to ionizing radiation due to the presence uh, of melanin. But when this fungus lives in Antarctica, it's in its uh, natural environment. It's also exposed to first a lot of UV radiation, of course, because there is no vegetation there to protect it from uh, UV radiation, no shade. And I think in, it's also uh, close to the ozone hole. So like ozone holes have been closing a little bit down during the last decade or so, right? Because people actually started to take uh, action against all those compounds which destroy ozone layer. But still, the closer to the poles you get, the more exposure to ozone, which is a very damaging compound. And still, and of course, like uh, the the very low temperatures uh, in winter, so the contribution of a lot of damaging factors and still that fungus lives there. So which shows you how resistant those organisms are due to many mechanisms of how they sort of propagate and how can they repair the damage, but also in a certain way due to presence of melanin. Yes, and we've touched on some really powerful examples of melanized fungi, the environments they're able to survive in, some of the mechanisms you're explaining here. Is there any other key aspect of your work or maybe just a certain area of research or an experiment that that you've carried out that offers us any more insight into melanized fungi, you know, something, and it could be work with collaborators, that kind of thing, but anything I've missed that really was intriguing or taught you a lot about these organisms and their relationship with melanin? Well, I think uh, two aspects are very fascinating. One is that that radioprotective role of melanin. So when fungus finds itself in a really high radiation field, right? which is, say, thousands times higher than a human can survive, right? right? Really high. So when it becomes, like, really high even for a fungus, so then melanin serves as a radio protector. Basically, it scatters some of that uh, ionizing radiation away. It absorbs some of the formed free radicals, and that's how it protects the fungal cells from being killed by enormous amounts of uh, ionizing radiation. Another, in another scenario, when you have the same fungus which exists in an elevated uh, radiation field, it's not very, very high, but still say it's maybe 100 or 10 times higher than any human can take, right? For fungus, it's, it's not the level at which fungus will die. It can tolerate it. But if that fungus also experiencing, as I already mentioned, the lack of energy sources, and uh, that was happening, say, around the reactor area, for example, when those fungi were, black fungi were found on the pieces of the destroyed uh, nuclear fuel and such. 
So then via melanin, they, they can use that energy, like part of that energy of ionizing radiation to complement their energy sources and to grow and to thrive. So they don't need protection. They now need that function of melanin just to help them to harvest the energy for their metabolism. And that's what we showed on many occasions in the lab. Just last year, we published uh, one paper where we, and it has actually nice uh, picture. That paper is available freely in open access where we showed the picture of one of those black fungi becoming like really furry in the presence of ionizing radiation, while the same fungus, which was grown without the presence of ionizing radiation in the conditions of starvation, was not as uh, huge, not as furry, because it just didn't have enough energy uh, to grow. And we also looked at the genomic uh, transcriptomic part of what's going on on the molecular level, so, yes, I think that interaction of uh, fungal melanin with ionizing radiation is real. And yeah. a lot of groups uh, observe it, report it. And uh, I think this is something we will continue doing uh, in the future. And I've seen it popularized, you know, people posting on social media and on the Internet like to say, oh, there's fungi now that eat radiation, somehow implying that there's some protection. So just to dispel that, these fungi are not getting rid of ionizing radiation in the environment, making safer for other organisms. They're simply harvesting small, small parts of it if they need to, to derive energy, right? There's no inherent safety imbued by the fungi just being in that environment. They're not cleaning it up or anything like that. No, no. I mean, they cannot reduce the levels of radiation, right? I mean, that's what the uh, people who are interested in the subject should understand. Because as I said, the energy of ionizing radiation is one million times higher than fungi could deal with, right? They can just benefit themselves, right? <laughs> By using part of that enormous energy in their metabolism. What they can do, however, because the, if we're talking about melanized fungi, right? Yeah. So if there are a lot of them in the soil and the soil is uh, contaminated, say, with some radionuclides with some so-called hot particles, let's call radioactive particles hot. So because of that radiotropism, fungi can grow towards those uh, particles. They can envelope them in their body mass because fungi do produce some body mass and they can stabilize those kind of soils in a way so that uh, radioactive particle will be covered with melanized fungus and it will no leach into the groundwater and will not contaminate the groundwater, at least to a certain extent. So that's how uh, those fungi potentially could be used, say, in environmental remediation uh, to clean the soil from radioactive particles. But that's not, again, eating radiation. This is just uh, enveloping those particles into the fungal mass, and then it has to be cleaned up like the upper layer of the soil. So that's how it is. Still a very exciting potential, though, the fact that these fungi could basically envelope these hot particles that are emitting radioactive ionizing radiation waves and kind of 
help to prevent that from escaping the environment. So there is some element to that. There is a shred of truth in there, but yes, they are not eating the radiation and cleaning it out of the environment. But is there, from your research, have you or any of the colleagues that you've worked with found maybe applied uses for this fungal melanin? You know, when we think of radio protection, and like I said in the introduction, you think about soldiers, astronauts, people who may face environments with ionizing radiation, is there an applied future for using somehow either the fungi or the fungal-based melanin to create more effective radio protection suits or devices? Is anything like that on the horizon? Well, we are interested um, at this stage uh, with the sort of internal protection, right? So the melanin uh, which uh, could be ingested in the form of melanin-containing foods such as mushrooms. And uh, so far we've been discussing those microscopic fungi, right, which uh, live in the soil and then they can end up in our bodies uh, as pathogens. But there are also mushrooms like which we eat, say the ribbon, black ribbon mushrooms, which everybody probably tried as part of uh, Chinese cuisine, right? Those mushrooms contain a lot of melanin. They are also peach black. And uh, that's what we're trying to develop as uh, melanin-containing food, which could be taken, say, by uh, cancer patients before they go for radiation therapy or taken on a regular basis by astronauts uh, in the space when they are on a mission and they need to protect their like internal organs with the melanin or taken by the soldiers who will need to go into the high radiation level environment before they go there. So the radioprotective effects uh, of melanin certainly uh, can and should be used. And that's what like we're trying to do our small part in developing that uh, angle of (laughs) melanin qualities. And uh, yeah, I think there is a lot of interest and need for the radio protection for, as I said, wide range of situations. Yeah, I mean, that that offers a lot of hope. And I didn't even think of just, of course, ingesting more melanin. Now, obviously, that would not imbue your cells with the same fungal wall of melanized protection, but it would translate then if your cells had more melanin in those special organelles that would imbue some kind of radioactive protection then. Right. Yes, we uh, actually demonstrated that several years ago in our mice and published it when uh, mice which were fed with uh, those edible uh, melanized mushrooms, the same which we humans eat, were protected from lethal dose of ionizing radiation. And currently we have a very interesting project in the lab funded by Canadian uh, Space Agency to try to demonstrate that that kind of internally uh, consumed melanin could also protect against uh, the types of radiation which is found in space, right? That's what astronauts are experiencing. We just, because of COVID, cannot still travel to the Brookhaven National Laboratory where such environment exists, right? And that's where we can irradiate our mice. So hopefully, maybe by the end of this year, we will be able finally to perform such experiments and see if melanin can protect mammals such as mice, the little model sort of of a mammal against a space type of radiation, heavy ions and things like that. 
that's incredibly fascinating. And I think so many listeners now are going to share my idea that I need to now integrate more melanin-containing mushrooms into my diet to protect my body from radiation. And just out of curiosity, I know chaga is one type of fungi that's always held out for a very high melanin content. Has there been any research or evidence in tinctures or any kind of extract from any of these melanin-containing fungi that could also imbue any kind of radioactive protection, or is that really outside the scope of your research? Well, we didn't look at um, many type of uh, melanized fungi, but uh, uh, certainly I think any kind of melanized mushroom which is edible will uh, have the same effect because uh, in those mushrooms, the type of melanin, so-called like DHN melanin, is very, very similar. It's actually similar across the board. Mm. So I think any kind of edible melanized mushroom will have the same effect the same radioprotective effect if consumed before exposure to radiation. Right. So, of course, with the caveat that you are not giving medical advice, there is a strong principle that you've been able to prove in the lab that melanin-containing fungi, when ingested, do imbue that kind of protection. That's incredible. And just another way that mushrooms have these health benefits that we might not immediately appreciate. Uh, So really, really fascinating work. And then you've talked about experiments that are ongoing now. For you, what is the future then of examining melanin-containing fungi? I mean, you know, do you see a future where we're able to work with these organisms to remediate some of these environments like maybe Fukushima or obviously Chernobyl that we've talked about? Do you see that as a possibility within the next 10 or 20 years to both use their remediative capacity for environments affected by radiation and also to kind of further develop supplements that can protect people from harmful radiation kind of in the internal sense? Do you see those as really viable technologies developing in the next 10 to 20 years? Oh, yes, because uh, I think uh, the huge advantage of all those like microscopic fungi or macroscopic mushrooms-based technologies is that there is even a saying that something or somebody is growing fast as mushrooms grow, right? (laughs) So those things, they grow fast. And uh, by that virtue, they are not expensive. So basically, if, uh, for example, there is an area uh, contaminated with uh, radionuclides, which needs to be reclaimed, right? I think one of the ways would be to populate it with uh, black mushrooms, which, as I said, not difficult to do, right? So you spread some spores around that area and they will grow. And uh, hopefully they will be able to bind some of those contaminating hot radioactive particles, which then could be scooped and uh, taken away as the upper layer of the contaminated soil, right? That kind of thing. With Fukushima, of course, I cannot say anything like that. That's a very specific environment there where sort of my understanding, it's like leaking into the ocean, that radioactive contamination. Uh, Technically, I don't know how to sort of suggest our melanized fungi, how they can help uh, Japanese colleagues. But of course, on a human scale, like the radio protection, Yes, I hope that uh, some kind of, you know, companies or somebody would be interested in uh, 
uh, using this technology because as with many technologies, you can show really nice results in the lab. So we're protecting our mice from, say, gamma radiation and hopefully we'll be able to protect it from space-like radiation. But then we need somebody who would help to translate it into humans, like maybe some volunteers, maybe some clinical trial. So that's when you know, interested uh, parties should come along, right, and work with yeah. us. We're happy to collaborate with any company, any entity which would be able to take this into humans because the need is there. You know, uh, every second cancer patient has to go for radiation therapy in the cause of their disease, and the side effects of radiation are very serious. And uh, those unfortunate patients, they need protection. And of course, like when uh, astronauts uh, will go into deep space on those long missions, they also need to be protected against uh, really strong space radiation, which they will encounter. Yeah, I think that's something we forget about a lot when you talk about exploration in outer space. There's incredible ionizing radiation that makes it very, very dangerous, and they have to wear special protection. And so yeah, whether you're in outer space or like you said, whether you're in a hospital, which so many people's lives have been affected by cancer and of course the treatment usually necessitates radiation. So there's like kind of the most far out application seemingly and then the most practical for this kind of research. So I really do hope that we see it grow. You know, you were the first person whose work that I really came across. So it's kind of opened me up to this world. And I really hope that this is something that's going to be developed that we'll realize we need to put resources into. Because I think it's another way where fungi are seemingly offering hope for a problem that can be really tough for us to, to grapple with. Well, another aspect of your work that I do want to cover, and obviously we won't be able to cover it in its entirety, but I was really interested in the concepts. So it's kind of, again, bringing in radiation, it's bringing in fungi, but in this case, using very targeted radiation delivered by antibodies to maybe work against pathogenic fungi and even viruses. And that is this idea of radio immunotherapy. So if you can just lay out the basic tenets of what radio immunotherapy is, because we've been talking about radiation as something very dangerous, and here's an application where it's actually helping to protect our system. All right. So radioimmunotherapy is the concept uh, and methodology which exists for, I would say, more than 30 years, right? And it's actually now in clinical use. It mm. has evolved uh, as a treatment for cancer, and that's how it is now certain type of uh, radioimmunotherapy are approved for clinical use in uh, certain types of cancers. Basically, uh, you have cancer cells, and cancer cells, they express certain proteins on their surface, right? And uh, the antibodies recognize uh, those uh, uh, molecules. And uh, so uh, what is expressed on the cancer cells will be called an antigen, right? And an antibody recognizes its antigen. So when such antibody is injected into patient's bloodstream, it will start searching for those cells expressing its antigen like a little missile. So <laughs> if you arm that missile with something radioactive, such a radioactive isotope, which is when decay is capable of destroying the cell, 
And so that would be an alpha particle, which I already mentioned, and you mentioned, and or beta particle. There you have it, that concept of radiomunotherapy, specific antibody, specific for certain cancer antigen, delivering a small radioactive atom, but when it decays, it can destroy that cancer cell. So that's the concept. So our lab was the first to translate that concept into the field of infectious diseases, right? So we didn't need to invent anything in terms of what will deliver. Yes, it will be the antibody, but now the antibody will be specific for something which microbe is expressing, right? Uh, or a virus is expressing. So now we are trying to kill the microbial cell or a human cell infected with a virus, for example, with the same radio-labeled uh, antibodies. And uh, in a way, it's sort of uh, even more precise killing because the antibodies which recognize all those microorganisms or bacteria or fungi or viruses, they do not find anything familiar on our human organs, right? So they will go only there. While if you are treating cancer, so there is always a chance that that antibody also will sort of find similar target on a normal organ and it will be a bit toxic, right? So the toxicity of uh, radiomunotherapy for infectious diseases potentially is much, much lower than even for cancer treatment, where it's already uh, quite low. So that's the concept. And of course, uh, it takes, I think, uh, some understanding why we are doing it, because people ask, well, there are antibiotics uh, or there are antifungals. And we, of course, are not trying to uh, cure some kind of a very treatable infection, right, which uh, is still amenable to antibiotics, uh, to antifungals. We are going after things when actually antibiotics or antifungals do not work. And what I'm talking about, say, you have a person whose immune system is not functioning or functioning very poorly. And uh, these are, say, cancer patients who underwent several types of different therapy, their immune system is compromised, or people who constantly immunosuppressed because they have lupus or they have an organ transplanted in their body. So if such people are infected with uh, bacteria or fungi, uh, their immune system cannot work in concert with antifungals or antibiotics, and they do not work. So they need something completely different which is not dependent on the immune system, such as those radio-labeled antibodies, radioimmunotherapy. So that's the concept. And of course, for diseases such as HIV, where there is still no treatment, that also could be a part of so-called cure strategy. And just kind of a very basic question, when you are radio-labeling antibody, so you've just laid out beautifully how we find the specific antibody targeting, whether it's the cancer or the viral pathogen, you know, it's an antibody specially suited to recognize embedded proteins on the outside or however they're recognizing exactly what they're targeting for. You, you identify what that antibody is, then how are you inserting a particle that will eventually be delivered by the antibody into the cell you're trying to eliminate, how are you inserting it in there 
without hurting kind of the host of the antibodies, without hurting the human host, without that radioactive, those radioactive waves from that particle getting out. Um, like I said, a very nascent question, but when I conceptualize how this works, I, I just couldn't get around that. Well, it's uh, how we sort of we arm that molecule by attaching the radioactive atom, right? And uh, right. so the molecule itself most likely will stay intact. So it will be able to make it to the target, say the tumor or the infected organs, uh, before that radionuclide decays and uh, releases that particle, say alpha particle or beta particles, which would kill a diseased cell or a cancer cell. So uh, basically we are hoping, and I mean, it has been demonstrated in animals and in cancer, as I said, it's it's approved in people. So those yeah. antibodies, they uh, localize to their target, say a tumor or an infected site relatively quickly. So basically all those decays of uh, radioactive atoms attached to those antibodies, they are already happening on the target. So that's where those decays are happening. While uh, some of them are still happening in the bloodstream, yes, I mean, it's unavoidable, but right. it has been shown that the toxicity of radiomunotherapy, say in cancer patients, is uh, orders of magnitude lower than the toxicity of common chemotherapy, which people have to take, unfortunately, or of course. lower than toxicity of that like novel approach, relatively novel now, so-called immunotherapy, right? So immunotherapy also could have some very toxic effects on the heart, on the skin, and so on. But radiomunotherapy uh, is very sparing because it's very, very targeted. As I said, I mean, like the antibody rushes towards its target, which is a tumor or infected organs. And that's where all that radiation is being delivered. Of course, that makes so much sense. In the aggregate, you have much less radioactive material. It's just being delivered exactly to that small cell, which I imagine it doesn't take much of the radioactive atom itself to actually induce apoptosis in a cancer cell or something like that. So, okay, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And when we talk about viruses, of course, it's unavoidable to think of the virus that's kind of shaped the world for the last year. Has this had any application to coronavirus, you know, SARS-CoV-2? Has any of those, or has a hypothesis in that direction been posited or formed at all? Well, here, you know, I've been asked that question many times. So <laughs> with um, coronavirus, there are now the antivirals, right? So basically, if one tries to kill the viral particle itself with ionizing radiation, this is very difficult or even impossible task, right? Because the viral particle is so small that the ionizing radiation will sort of miss it and uh, will go through. And of course, like the viral particle, it's not even alive, I mean, say bacterial cell is a cell, fungal cell is a cell, is something life which you can kill with radiation. Virus mm. is uh, more close to like a nanoparticle, right, for those who are interested in, in nanotechnology. So to kill the virus uh, directly with uh, ionizing radiation is almost impossible. You need huge doses and like the patient will die before you kill that virus, right? The patient mm. will be irradiated. 
the way we deal, say, with HIV, uh, we are not killing, again, the HIV virus. We are killing the host cells, like the human cells infected with HIV, where HIV propagates, right? Because the virus cannot propagate by itself. But HIV, of course, has a very different time course of the disease. People, fortunately, like do not die in the matter of like one week or two weeks, right? So there is time to deploy the treatment. With uh, coronavirus, like when it's really acute, and uh, luckily it's acute only in a very small percentage of people, but still, right? So there is no time to deploy such therapy. Where potentially there could be a solution, and I think uh, we have to wait for more data on that, it seems that there are uh, some people with so-called long-haul COVID, right? So they're not dying and uh, they are functioning, but they cannot recover. It seems like the virus persists in their bodies and that already resembles to me more like HIV situation, right? Where the virus is there. So maybe radiomunotherapy could be developed for those long-haul COVID-infected individuals, right? But when somebody, for example, like an elderly person becomes infected and uh, the symptoms worsen and progress, that's, of course, not the case where radium immunotherapy should be used. And uh, luckily now there are several drugs already, not not vaccines, but drugs being approved by FDA uh, for treatment of COVID, such as antibody cocktails from Regeneron, and remdesivir and some others. So they should be deployed right away to prevent that person from uh, having a bad outcome. Absolutely. So in general, it sounds like this radio immunotherapy could be a powerful tool for instances where you're dealing with a pathogen or a cancer that other treatments are not working for. I mean, in the case of cancer, it would seem to be just a direct alternative to chemotherapy, especially for people who are already, you know, for whatever reason, have a compromised immune system and you don't want such a high dose of radioactive particles. This would seem to be a kind of a replacement or another option there. But in terms of some of these other things that we're talking about, other pathogens, other bacterial or viral particles, you have to be very judicious in how you choose to use it and when is definitely what I'm hearing here. I I just was so fascinated by reading about that. It was, again, my first exposure to it. I think that's a theme with all of your work. You were talking about things I had never heard of before. So (laughs) I really appreciate you kind of explaining that down to a very basic level where we could all digest what your work's really about. Well, Dr. Dadachova, Uh, You know, we've talked about a lot of different areas of your work, but if there's one or two things you want to highlight coming in the near future that you're really excited about or any other future plans that you want to leave us with. Well, I think we will keep on developing that radio immunotherapy. I think there is need for it, both in cancer. We collaborate with several companies, which actually clinical uh, trial companies bringing those therapies into the patients. We also hope that, again, some uh, industrial partner will emerge, which will help us to translate the radioimmunotherapy of infection into the clinic, because every time, say, we publish a paper on HIV, uh, I am inundated by letters from the patients, 
like young patients who volunteer themselves for clinical trials of that cure strategy. So it's like the need is there. We just need uh, some uh, kind of industrial partner support because without industrial partners, you cannot cross from the bench into the bedside, right? And uh, to bring those uh, treatments to the people. So the translation, that's my mantra. You know, we need the partners, we need the interested companies and entities in translating all those findings to the people who need the most, uh, which are patients. Yes. Well, I hope the future does involve partners coming to the table to explore, I mean, both of these areas of your research, both the radio immunotherapy and also the work with melanized fungi. I think there's so much potential here kind of on, I mean, the cutting edge that you've been exploring for a while, but what seems like the cutting edge in many ways to me. Um, and where can people find you? You know, people that are listening, that are interested in your work, that may want to pursue this work, or people that, you know, see the potential and want to figure out how they can get involved. Who knows? But where's the best place for people to connect with you and find more about your work? Well, I think the best way is to find me on the uh, website of uh, University of Saskatchewan. You know, every faculty member has uh, their own web page. So if they type in Dadachova, all my contact info will come up or they can look me up on PubMed where all those publications uh, are being presented and there is my email. So, or they can just Google me. So <laughs> I am very, very accessible and I always answer my emails quite expeditiously. So please contact me if you have interest in those kind of treatments. And I can tell you that if you search Edicarina Datachova and radio immunotherapy or melanized fungi, there is one result that comes up and it, and it is always Dr. Datachova. Uh, so definitely go see your work. We'll have all the links there in the show notes as well. And something that I usually ask at the beginning, but I'm just immensely curious because this is the mushroom hour, what has your relationship with mushrooms or fungi been throughout your life? Because obviously you have an Eastern European heritage. What has that relationship with mushrooms been? Because here in America, we're just experiencing this huge interest in mushrooms, of course, which is why people reach out to you here for interviews. But what has your relationship with fungal organisms been uh, throughout your life? Has it been kind of there from the beginning or something you found later in life? Did you go foraging? All those kind of questions. <laughs> well, I've I, I always been like a, an avid consumer of mushrooms, right? <laughs> being Russian, as, as you uh, correctly referred uh, to. So, yeah, I mean, in Eastern Europe, uh, picking uh Wild mushrooms is one of the favorite pastimes. And as a child, as a teenager, I was doing it. And mushrooms are really nutritious. Uh, when I moved uh, to North America, I realized that here the edible mushrooms uh, are a little bit different, right? I even once went to mushroom camp in California, in Sonoma County. And uh, those mycology colleagues, they showed us a different uh, edible mushrooms which grow there and every time I was picking a mushroom I was wrong I was actually picking up not a good mushroom but they are there and uh, I know that some people here in uh, North America they pick up morels right and other mushrooms they're extremely delicious what uh, I am using here as I said I'm not a really good identifier of North American mushrooms in the wild. So I am just buying dry mushrooms in the stores. I, I love those, uh, as I said, those ribbon uh, Chinese mushrooms. Uh, that correct name is uh, Oricalaria judy. 
It's the Judith ear, like another name for that mushroom. And I, I like all the mushrooms which I can get my hands on. So an avid consumer, and I recommend uh, to everybody sort of include them in their, di- in their diet. They have a lot of proteins and uh, a lot of micro elements and really good for you. So that's my relationship with mushrooms in a nutshell. <laughs> I had a feeling, you know, you work with them in the lab and all these different capacities, but I had a feeling there was an avid mushroom consumer and hunter <laughs> and everything. And I'm just so happy to find out that is the case. Well, I'll wrap things up with three questions that I like to ask all my guests. And I actually was going to change the first one. I usually ask people to just give us the name of a mushroom or a fungus that they love and why. And I will add that if you can maybe give us a mushroom or a fungus that you became familiar with in Russia as well, or maybe just give us one mushroom, but just a mushroom you love and why, and then maybe a mushroom specific to your time in Russia that we may have never heard of. Well, I think uh, the mushrooms uh, which people traditionally eat in Russia, they are known here also very well. So my favorite mushroom, and I think a lot of Russian people love it, is uh, chanterelle, right? One of my favorite, I think one of everybody's favorites. Yes, yes. yes. That's like uh, people fry it together with potatoes. And uh, that's my favorite mushroom. And when I, for myself, like a picture mushroom, I always have a chanterelle in front of my eyes. This is a beautiful mushroom. And uh, uh, I think it's uh, sort of difficult to uh, make a mistake when you identify those mushrooms, right? So that's that's uh, that's a problem nowadays. Uh, even like for avid uh, pickers of wild mushrooms in Russia, I think within the last two three decades, uh, a lot of false so-called false, false mushrooms appeared, right? Which uh, resemble in the appearance good mushrooms, but in fact right. they are uh, not. So that's the problem. Uh, so, that, but I think chanterelle is also very safe to pick and it's beautiful and it's nutritious. So that's, that's what I like. That's what I really like. A choice after my own heart. I love chanterelles as well. There is no better mushroom to find than that beautiful, bright golden mushroom on the forest floor. And I may be wrong about this, but I believe they also have the nickname uh, of Lishki in Russia, the, uh, the fox. Lisichki. 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 Lisichka means a tiny fox. It's like diminutive name for a fox because they are sort of reddish orange and resemble the color of fox fur. That's why they're called lisichki, which is like a small, tiny fox. Ever since I heard that, I I love foxes as well. (laughs) So I fell in love with that name, lisichki. So I thank you for for verifying that. That makes me happy. Uh, And then a big broad question that I had, you know, we're just hearing about you've been an avid mushroom consumer. You've worked in researching kind of really novel fungi, these melanated fungi. You know, what has this relationship you've developed with these organisms brought to your life? And that can mean new perspectives, new ideas, maybe even some kind of spirituality. What is the relationship you've developed with mushrooms and fungi uh, brought to your life? Well, I think uh, mushrooms are great survivors, right? Mushrooms can grow almost anywhere, right? They grow even like microscopic mushrooms in the nuclear contaminated environment. So I think uh, mushroom can teach us resilience and flexibility. So 
Mushrooms, as we just discussed, could be used for anything from studying really basic uh, interesting concepts of how living matter interacts with radiation to very, very practical applications, how to help people who are sick with certain diseases or uh, find themselves in highly radioactive environments. So and the, the answer could be use mushrooms or mushroom traits in a certain way. So I think uh, like uh, mushrooms really actually show their, to me their flexibility and their survivability and adaptability. So I think all of us need those qualities in our life. So that's what I learned from mushrooms. So true. I think so many of us have a lot to learn from mushrooms about adaptability and about resiliency and being a survivor. I love that idea. And then you've kind of answered it right there. But the last question that I have is, you know, what is your hope for human society as we develop our research and interest in these organisms? You know, when we look down the road, maybe even 20 years, how do you hope that human society has changed for the better given our better understanding of mushrooms and fungi? Well, that's like a really global <laughs> question. Right? Really big question. Yeah, I yeah. think um, we need to learn, like as I said, survivability from mushrooms because mushrooms utilize whatever resources they have uh, in a very economical and smart way. And uh, that's what we have to learn from mushrooms. You know, like if we want to continue as a, civilized society and we don't want to end uh, back in the like cave right we have to use the resources which we have on this planet uh, much smarter right the, the way the mushrooms use them so we don't have to produce and we should not produce that many waste as we now produce as plastics and uh, all those uh, you know other things which we contaminate the planet with we need to, to be like mushrooms consuming everything economically and not leaving any waste behind. Actually, mushrooms, where mushrooms live, then the soils become habitable, right? Because the mycelia so makes the soils much better. So we need to be like mushrooms in a way, not destroying our own environment, but being beneficial to our own environment so we can preserve it for future generations. That's what I think we have to learn from mushrooms. I think so many of us who get interested in mycology and mushrooms have that exact same hope that you just elucidated so well. And I think you just gave me a great question for the future that I'm going to have to now put in all of these interviews, which is what have you learned from mushrooms? <laughs> I love that. I love that. What have you learned from mushrooms? Well, Dr. Dadachova, uh, thank you so much for coming on and explaining these really kind of high level, often very technical concepts in a very approachable way and sharing your research with us. It's very exciting and inspiring material. So thank you so much for coming on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you so much for having me.